The following is a message by Librarian John Bales from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. As you know, uh, during this spring semester, we've been going through the minor prophets, and this morning we are directing our attention to the prophet Zechariah. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through chapter 13, verse 1. Zechariah 12, beginning with verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Father, since our salvation completely depends upon the proper understanding of your word, I pray that you will help us this morning now to hear it, to understand it, to cherish it, and to obey it. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, some historical context might be helpful as we look to this passage this morning. You can recall that in 538, soon after the conquest of Babylon, Cyrus had issued an edict which said, It's okay now for you Jewish folk to rebuild your temple. Sheshbazar, the first provincial governor, was nominated by the Persians, but he failed in the work of rebuilding the temple. And it was only in 520 that a second governor, Zerubbabel, a descendant of Jerusalem's royal ancient house, took up the attempt once more. And this time he was encouraged by the high priest, Jeshua, and that's the first time that title is used, high priest. The building of the temple got underway There was also support from two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and their success was enormous. Zechariah took up his proclamation in 520, and his final words 
were spoken in December of 518 B.C. His appeal to the people and their leaders bore incredible fruit because the temple was indeed rebuilt and consecrated in 515 B.C. Then we come to chapter 12 and God begins to do, uh, continues to do a work for his people and what he does in the beginning of chapter 12 is to say, I am going to protect you, O people of Judah and Jerusalem, because there will be armies that will come upon you, but you will be a staggering cup to them. What an amazing picture that was. The Lord would defend Jerusalem against the the nations, and he would keep watch over Judah. He would strike the attacking armies with a plague so that they would devastate the horses and their riders. And so God offers protection and provision for his people. Recall that perhaps one of the great themes of the prophet Zechariah was found in chapter 1, verse 3. Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. And then amazingly, as we now approach the text for today, we see God beginning to do what we would call an internal work among the people. And as I thought about this text, my immediate thought was the words that Augustine penned in the Confessions, uh, the words that really irritated Pelagius. Give what you command and command what you will. God said to the people, return to me. And if the people were, had any kind of spiritual knowledge, they might have said, how can we do that? We are so utterly lost. So give what you command, command what you will. He commanded them to return to him, and now he's going to give them what they need. And that is, in fact, a spirit, the spirit of, of God, God's Holy Spirit, will be poured out upon them with a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy. A spirit of grace and pleas of supplication. Grace. Why would it be called a spirit of grace for these people? Because these people are spiritually dead like you and I, apart from Christ. They're spiritually dead and living in darkness. We do not even acknowledge God. When uh, in my years of pastoral ministry, I would explain what does it mean for God to have an effectual call on a person and to explain to people the concept of predestination, I would often use the example, the paradigm of Lazarus. I said, look at Lazarus in the tomb. He's dead. He can't make himself come to life. He is absolutely, fundamentally dead. That's where we are in our sins and our trespasses. We are dead and we can't make ourselves come alive. We need the spirit of grace to begin to renew us so that we can even turn to the Lord. So it's called a spirit of grace because we're dead in our sins and trespasses and God begins to do something in us. It's also a spirit of supplication because this spirit will then cause us to begin to look to him in prayer. Now you might think, well that... That's a, rather a simple thing, but remember in the Old Testament, the basic teaching is that, that prayer is truly a gift from God. That uh, people in the Old Testament uh, did not have the right to pray. 
And people who presumed to pray in the Old Testament paid dearly when they tried to. It was God who authorized and God who appointed people in the Old Testament to pray. But now he's beginning to pour out his spirit in this last day, as that is echoed throughout the prophets, a spirit of grace and pleas for supplication. And what would be, what would be the nature of those pleas of supplication? Well, we learn from the text that there is going to be this this deep and intense mourning, lamentation that the people will feel. They will experience it. And it's compared to the mourning that people have for the loss of a child or their firstborn son. Again, reflecting on my years of ministry, as I talked with people, the greatest loss that people can experience is the loss of a child. I've talked with people who've lost their spouse, and I've talked with people who've lost their child. And they will tell you over and over again, the loss of a child is the greatest loss that you can experience in this lifetime. And we can only um, try to imagine again that, that ancient cultural context of the loss of a firstborn son that represented and meant everything to those people. The continuing on of the name and, and the, uh, the, the benefits that would come by having a firstborn son who would care and protect for the family. We can think of Abraham raising the the knife against Isaac and the great anxiety that he experienced. We can think of the Egyptians and the great cry that went out that night as they mourned the loss of their firstborn sons. The scope of this grief would touch upon the whole nation. And it's also compared to the loss of uh, uh, in the valley of, of Megiddo. And there are the references to King Josiah, who was pierced in that valley. We know from the books of Chronicles that the morning, uh, their mourning of, of Josiah's tragic death became really a later event that they commemorated. And so they're reflecting on this great mourning and deep, intense lamentation and comparing it to the greatest loss that perhaps we can feel in this lifetime. And this lamentation would have impact every aspect of the community. Every group would be represented. No one would be left out. Each group would be mourning by itself. And within each group, men and women mourn together, men with their wives. In other words, there wouldn't be any finger pointing, well, it was you. You did it. You leaders, you religious leaders, you civic leaders, you women, you men. There would be none of that here. Everyone would feel it. Individuals, families, and the mourning would be experienced not only locally in Jerusalem, but throughout the land. Two particular groups are mentioned. They are the civic leaders, David and Nathan included with him, and the priestly line, Levi and his grandson, Shammai. Two lines representing royal and priestly leadership, because surely... These leaders had failed them in the past. They were the ones in the past to blame for the sins of the nation. But here the spirit is being poured out upon everyone so that they would all sense this great need that they would have. So Zechariah said, return to me, the Lord said through him, and I will return to you. 
Christ calls each one of us as sinners to return to him and to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when God's spirit works in us and causes us to turn to him, we are then able to repent. And when we do, we know it's God's grace in us anyway. It's the grace to say, it's me. It's my sin and my grief because I have done this against the Lord. As Paul would say, godly sorrow leads to repentance. There is a sorrow that we can experience, but there's also a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow is a sorrow that comes from God. God stirs us to understand our great need. And it's a godly sorrow because then it points us back to the Lord. So that we would be able to say like David, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's godly sorrow. And that's what the people were beginning to experience. Spurgeon said this about godly sorrow. Genuine mourning for sin comes as a gift of divine grace. Grace comes into the heart and enlightens the understanding so that the man understands what his criminality is in the sight of God. Then the grace of God operates upon the conscience so that the man sees the evil and the bitterness of the sin which he has committed against the thrice holy Jehovah. Then the same grace affects the heart so that the man beholds the infinite graciousness and eternal love of Christ and then begins to loathe himself to think that he should ever have treated Christ so ill. So by a work of grace upon the soul and not by any other process does the Spirit of God make men weep for sin so that they hate it and turn away from it. Well, what was the object, or who is the object of this mourning, this, this lamentation that the people of Judah were, were feeling? The text tells us it's because they looked on me, on him. This is a somewhat problematic part of the text. Scholars have debated this. Why switching from a first person, look on me, and then look on him, a switch to the third person. And so there has been debate among scholars as they try to understand what this passage meant for those people. And whomever may have been pierced, they were pierced to the point of death. This piercing is not just a stabbing, but it is a deathly blow, a piercing which leads to death. Well, who is this? As I mentioned, some commentators suggest that the picture here which unfolds is of a victorious army, right? The picture might have been the the victorious army of Judah as God had protected Jerusalem from the onslaught of these nations. But suddenly they're plunged into grief by the realization that they have executed someone from among them, someone representing the Lord within the city, perhaps because of a mob force out of panic because of these nations pressing in upon them and the community's subsequent recognition that they have wrongly executed someone who truly did speak for God. That's possible because right after this passage in chapter 13, verses 2 through 6, it talks about false prophets and how you deal with them. So is it possible they're saying, we're mourning the loss of someone who spoke for God? 
That's one way to look at it. Calvin said we should take this really to refer metaphorically. He said that together with the Jews, we have offended God. We have instigated him. We have provoked him to wrath and vengeance. The Lord was stabbed metaphorically, Calvin would say, by the people's apostasy. And then he would say, later on in redemptive history, we see the fulfillment of this, as it's recorded in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is pierced by a Roman sword. Well, from this flood of tears that these people experienced, this wailing and mourning, from that flood of tears we come to the beginning of chapter 13, to a fountain of cleansing. From one kind of fountain, a fountain of tears, to another kind of fountain, one of cleansing. On that day, Zechariah said, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem to remove guilt. You see, it's not just enough to feel sorrow for something that we have done. But repentant people need to be cleansed from their sin. And so God opens up for them a fountain or a spring from which will flow the running water necessary for their own ritual purification. What better news could there be for people who are weeping for their sin than the opening of a fountain to cleanse them from it? Here as in elsewhere in the Old Testament, we see a fountain that God uses. It was the image David used to describe the abundant life that he found in God. With you is the fountain of life, he said. For Jeremiah, God was that spring or that fountain of living water that the people had foolishly forsaken for their own broken cisterns. For Solomon, the fear of the Lord was the fountain of life. And for Zechariah, this fountain represents total cleansing, the complete answer to the last, uh, at last, to sin and impurity that had marred Israel's relationship with God forever. And so they are told, look upon me, on him, the Lord says. Look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, John the Evangelist would tell us. And we see that prophecy fulfilled in John 19, verse 37, where Christ is pierced by the sword of a soldier, and he's hanging on the cross. And as it tells us in Luke's gospel, the centurion looked upon him, and he said, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds assembled for this spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. This prophecy was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, he has offered for us a fountain of cleansing. When you think about it, though, only a few people actually looked upon him on that cross. And so what are we to do? John tells us, in a different way, we are to look upon him. John tells us in chapter 6, verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, and then he ties it to faith, and believes in him, should have eternal life. And I will raise him on the last day. 
And so, looking on him whom they have pierced, the evangelist tells us, is a faith which sees the crucified Jesus not as a human failure, but as the exalted, glorified Son of Man, and in which we also see the blood and the water flowing out of that pierced side as a gift of life. Thomas was able to place his hand in the, the opening where Jesus had been pierced. But Jesus said, Blessed are you who have not seen, but have believed. Dear friends, this morning, repent. Return to the Lord. Look upon him by apprehending him in faith. Believe and trust his promises for you, and you will be forgiven. There will be a fountain flowing from Emmanuel's veins. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have graciously called out the church to be your peculiar treasure, and you lead us daily under your banner of grace. You invite us so kindly and graciously and gently by the voice of your gospel. I pray that you will grant to each one of us the ability to not neglect so great a kindness or render ourselves unworthy of your holy calling. O Father, be pleased to continue to impart to us your spirit of grace and supplication that we may see our own misery apart from Christ and that we may behold him by faith. O Lord, increase our faith today. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.